Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. Before I dive into today's topic on the Bible and women, I want to do, I want you to do a little work for me. So here's the thing. There's no reason to have your computer open right now. I want you to close it. I want you to put your phone away. And I want you to turn to someone next to you. You have exactly 60 seconds. Consider this a low-level quiz, pop quiz, which is not graded. But with someone next to you, I want you to come up with as many women that we have talked about or come across in Scripture this semester as you possibly can. Make a list in 60 seconds. Go. How many can you name? All right, who came up with five? All right, keep your hand raised if you had 10. 15? 17, anybody beat 17? All right, so long as Dr. Mayward can prove it, you guys get a gift card. Live it up. All right, listen. Thank you for playing. Thank you for playing. But here's things, there, there's a method to the madness, okay? Listen, there's two things I want to say at this point. If you did a cursory look, if you did a cursory look at the women on your list, you would see that there is no singular woman's experience in Scripture. Right? We have women who are strong, virtuous. They lead Israel in times of trial. We have prophets, teachers, judges, queens. And we show that women, we have, are shown women who are weak of character, right? We have women who might have amazing will, but they're concubines, they're slaves, or in some other perilous or precarious position. We have saints, we have tyrants, and we have mothers, and we have murderers. There is no singular woman's experience in Scripture. And here's the somewhat other patently obvious takeaway. There are actually women in the Bible. Shocker, right? That might seem obvious. Not necessarily. Shh. Listen, a few years ago, a prominent pastor, I'm not going to name names because I am not here to sling any mud, but a very popular pastor, a preeminent Christian leader, he said this. He said that God ordained for Christianity to have, as he put it, a masculine feel. Here's a quote from him. He said, God revealed himself in the Bible Pervasively is king, not queen, father, not mother. The second person of the Trinity is revealed as the eternal son, not daughter. The father and the son create man and woman in his image and give them the name man, the name of the male. God appoints all the priests of the Old Testament to be men. The son of God came to the world to be a man. He chose 12 men to be his apostles and the apostles appointed that the overseers of the church be men. And when it came to marriage, they taught that the husband should be the head. 
So hence, as this man put it, Christianity by God's design should have a masculine feel. Now at its most basic, this sentiment is an expression of a relatively new phenomena within evangelical circles called complementarianism. And I'm gonna unpack that really well later on, okay? So don't worry about that now. Now, cards on the table. I disagree with that stream of interpretation. I'm an evangelical, but I don't hold to a complementarian view of scripture. But it is an undeniably biblical way of making sense of scripture. I can see how thoughtful, charitable, faithful Christians can get there. I do not hold that position, but I have loved ones who do. So again, I'm gonna unpack what that position is in a little bit, and I'm not gonna take umbrage with it here, but unfortunately what has happened here is that there's been a little bit of rhetorical excess. He's actually gone a bit too far, and I wanna name those excesses before I get at the heart of things, okay? Because I actually think they matter quite a bit. First and most important is this clarification. While scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is a man, the church also holds that he is at the same time fully human, fully divine. He is both of those at the same time. And the consensus opinion of the church historic is that God is neither male nor female. So Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He's actually God and he is a man, but God is neither male nor female. Now, if that combination is breaking your brain a little bit right now, that's good. We have stepped square into the center of a profound and mysterious collision of the triune life and the incarnation. Words should fail us at this point. It is, it's truly, us trying to make effable what is ineffable, trying to speak the unspeakable. But what I want, no matter what our attempts are to make sense of this, there's certain things that we just can't say. The second person of the Trinity is called Son because it best describes the relationship between that person and the other person, another person in the triune life, the Father. So father and son are relational terms. They're not sexed terms because God is neither male nor female. This is the undisputed, this is not a Lindsay Hankins hot take. This is the undisputed opinion of the church historic. So while Jesus was incarnated as a man, it is an overreach, it is a rhetorical flourish to say that he was incarnated to be a man, right? Like God was not just like, itching to become male, no, God was pleased to become human. For it wasn't just men or masculinity that Jesus redeemed, it was all of humanity, it was all of creation. The other overreach here is this little bit about man and woman being given the name man. The name of the male, as he puts it. If you rewind a little bit to our very first week here, together when we talked about Genesis, Remember that Adam means human. It does not mean male. That is an overreach. 
And importantly, all of God was involved in the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By invoking names that are gendered masculine only, right, Father, Son, sure, the Trinity starts to sound really masculine. But remember, God is neither male nor female. And the one God testified to in Scripture is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the final overreach. In this portion where he references exclusively male leadership, male apostleship in the church, this just isn't true. We've talked about this semester in the Old Testament. We have women who exercise profound authority. So over Israel, we have Huldah, Deborah, Miriam. We haven't gotten to it yet in the New Testament, but if we wanted to, right now I'm just going to turn to one section, right? Romans 16. And here's what we'll find. We'll find Phoebe, whom Paul calls a deacon. It's a generic male noun. It's the same one that Paul uses to describe his own work in a chapter before, in Romans 15. We have Junia, who, as Paul puts it, is prominent among the apostles. So overall, the central issue, the danger of a comment like this is it overstates a case. Because you're guaranteed a Christianity with a masculine feel if you excise all mention of women in its biblical and theological description. Women do exist in the biblical canon. They do play important roles in the history of God's people. And one thing I want to highlight at this point is an important relationship between two closely related but distinct realities. Biblical women and this concept of biblical womanhood. This relationship between these distinct realities is negotiated in part by exegetical, by hermeneutical lenses, by the lenses we use to navigate these texts. Lenses I'm gonna look at, we're gonna look at together, okay, here in a little bit. But underneath all of this are basic concepts of what it means to be a woman at all. Now, a phrase that I commonly hear from people something along the lines of this. I hold to a traditional view of men and women. And my response whenever I hear that from someone is, I hope to God you don't. And here's why. I want to show you why it is that you don't hold to this, why you ought not to hold to this. And I want to do it this way. So my background, I have a master's in history, I have a master's in theology, and my doctorate is in theology, but with church doctrine, the history of doctrine. So I love the tradition, the church tradition. It's my tradition. And over the decades, studying this tradition, every so often you come across a zinger. These men, these I love these church fathers. I fell in love with the gospel because of Augustine, because of Gregory, because of Tertullian, because of Thomas, because of Luther, because of Calvin. These are the men that made the gospel come alive to me. And yet every so often, there was just this zinger about women. And I started collecting them. And I want to share a few with you today. I actually love these men. But I love them well enough to highlight when they went totally off the rails. So I want to show you some traditional views of women, okay? Gird your loins. This gets a little painful (laughs) at points. Okay, so we're going to start actually with a guy named Aristotle. This is not a photo. Right, 
<laughs> this is a bust. Um, why, why start with Aristotle? He's not Jewish, right? He's certainly not a Christian. He lived before Christ. We're starting with Aristotle because his opinions about sex, about generation, have been enormously influential That's in terms of setting a qualitative difference between men and women. And here's that Aristotelian legacy in a nutshell. According to Aristotle, men are potent agents, women are receptive non-agents. Men do, women receive. That's Aristotle's position. And thus, because activity is better than potency, according to Aristotle, men are self-evidently better than women. If things had gone more to plan, then all women would have been men. Things went awry in the womb. And so for Aristotle, to be a woman is to be a deformed male. In no small way, Aristotle set the philosophical foundation upon which major figures in the church built up theological rationales for women as naturally dumber, weaker, and more prone to sin and to lure others into it. And if you think I'm overstating my case, let the journey begin. I love Tertullian. Tertullian said, you are the, he's talking about women, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. It's Eve's fault, Tertullian says. Clement says, every woman should be filled with shame by the very thought that she is a woman. The consciousness of their own nature must evoke feelings of shame. Origen, he says, men shouldn't listen to women, even if she says admirable things or even saintly things, that it, it's of little consequence, it doesn't matter, because it came from the mouth of a woman. Augustine, I won't make you read the whole thing, here's Augustine's thing, he literally can't think of a reason why God would make men, women other than sex. Because if I needed help in a garden, obviously a guy is a better help. If I'm bored and want someone to hang out with, obviously a man is better to hang out with. The only reason that Augustine, literally one of the brightest minds of all time, the only reason that he can think that God made women was for sex, making babies. Jerome comes in hot. Woman is the root of all evil. Albert the Great, we're skipping ahead, there's a lot. <laughs> I have others if you want them, but there's a lot. Albert the Great once said, that generally, proverbially, and commonly, it is affirmed that women are more mendacious, they're liars, and fragile, more diffident, more shameless, more deceptively eloquent, and in brief, a woman is nothing but a devil fashioned into a human likeness. Martin Luther, Martin Luther thought the very shape of men and women dictated what they're about. Men, the fact that you're inverted triangles, and that your, your shoulders are so broad, and your heads are so big, meant that you were meant for glory, you're meant for heavenly divine things, you're a thinking thing. The fact that women's bodies go out and we have nice, beautiful hips means that we're meant to sit, and to sit at home and be at home. I love Erasmus. So this is like a Greek take on the, like, the pig with lipstick thing. So he says, just as according to the proverb of the Greeks, an ape is always an ape, though dressed in scarlet, so a woman is always a woman that is a fool, whatever part she may have chosen to play. Kant. Kant literally based his entire philosophical, moral philosophy based on what he called the categorical imperative, principles of action. And he doesn't think women hold to principles. They just love things, not because they thought about it or have a principled attraction to it, but because they just like them. Hegel, this is a good one. He says, if I had to think about it, he says, the difference between men and women is that between animals and plants. 
Men correspond to animals while women correspond to plants because their development is more placid and the principle that underlies it is rather a vague unity of feeling. He can't literally describe what it means to be a woman. He's really struggling. He says, women are educated, who knows how, I swear I didn't add that, as if by breathing in ideas rather than by acquiring knowledge. He fundamentally doesn't get how it is that women learn. Because how do plants learn? And I'm sorry, this one probably hurts. C.S. Lewis, um, when the men went off to war, and there were some vacancies in Oxford, he was really concerned that too many women, it would become bewomaned. Uh, he was really concerned that Oxford, that was a word, by the way, he was really concerned that Oxford would be overrun with women. So he wanted to advocate for a quota to limit how many women could join because he said it would, be, it would avoid the appalling danger of our denigrating into a woman's college. Now, you'll excuse me, I'm going to skip ahead. I have like a million other options here, but I'm just not going to use them. But this is why. So this is why I say, this is why I say when people say to me, I hold a traditional view of men and women, I say, I hope to God you do not. Because here's the thing. The traditional view of women has consistently been that women are naturally dumber, naturally weaker, naturally more prone to sin, and naturally most prone to lure others into sin. It was Eve's fault. And just so, all subsequent Adams are naturally superior. And because this is the overwhelming, and I, I just need you to trust me on this point. As a historian, I can tell you that there are very few things that we have like just consistently agreed upon. And I'm just at this point, I'm talking about the West. There's very few things that we've agreed upon. Women's natural inferiority is uncontested. So that is the traditional portrait of what it means to be a woman, the majority opinion. And that shifted for evangelicals, so now I'm talking about a particular branch of the church, okay? I'm drilling into a particular branch of the church. That shifted for evangelicals around the 1980s, officially, okay? I mean, there's lots of shifts before then, but just there's an interesting shift that happens around the 1980s, which, by the way, really recent. <laughs> That's really recent. So before the 1980s, evangelicals' understanding of gender, roles of what men and women, their roles at church and home, these were largely implicit. People were not explicitly theorizing about these on the regular, okay? But since the 1980s, evangelicals' understandings of gender roles, of men and women's roles in church and home, became more explicit. So the egalitarian Christians for Biblical Equality, we'll call that CBE, and the complementarian Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood are the two particular camps that have given us language for an ongoing gender debate within evangelicalism. So complementarians, oh, I don't want to do that. Complementarians talk about the headship of women if you've ever heard that term, or uh, sorry, opposite, the headship of husbands. They talk about the submission of wives. Those are really important terms. Egalitarians are gonna speak instead about some terms like biblical equality, mutual submission. And these two camps, egalitarianism, complementarianism, remember they were both born in the mid 80s as a response to one another. 
So CBE was formed in 1987. They were formally brought together in 1987. CBWM, complementarianism, was born later that same year. And this is, from, um, this is a quote from the president of, CW, of CBMW at the time. He said this. He says, our cause exists because an altern alternate vision has arisen. Which means that because this camp of people came out and said, we think that there's something called biblical equality, another camp came out and said, no, we think there's actually something called headship and submission. So they were formed in direct response to each other. Now, I'm going to further unpack both of the positions of these options within evangelicalism in a bit. But the important thing I want you to note at this point is that both complementarianism and egalitarianism are historic novelties insofar as they both take as a given that men and women are of equal value before God. The fact that both of these camps are going to say that in the eyes of God, men and women have equal dignity, that they both bear the image of God fully, that makes them profoundly novel movements. They're both innovations. Neither of them hold to a traditional view in that respect. And I'm noting this, well, and here's another thing I want to mention. Both of these camps have a profound love and care of scripture. The best and brightest and most charitable of each of these movements will absolutely look at someone on the other side and say, no, I know you love the Bible, but we do fundamentally read it differently. This is not about whether you take scripture authoritatively. This is not about whether you take it as a guide for life. This is not whether you take it to be inspired by the very spirit of God. Both of these groups do. They just read it really, really differently. So, what do these two positions actually believe? Both these groups share, as I said, deep commitments to salvation through Christ and Christ alone. They are both committed to very thorough biblical scholarship, and they're equally committed to the well-being of marriages and churches. Where they depart, and they depart significantly, is not on these values, they hold those in common. What they disagree on is how to implement those values because they read scripture differently. So what I'm about to do now, I wanna tell sort of salvation history, creation, fall, redemption, and I wanna show you how each of these camps would look at those moments in salvation history differently, okay? How they would interpret that. So let's look at creation first. Egalitarians believe that men and women were created to be equal partners, and they're both told to exercise dominion. Egalitarians hold that the Bible teaches the full equality in function and in value of men and women in creation and redemption. The fact that, and you read this, right, in Genesis, the fact that woman is called helper does not connote any inferiority for an egalitarian. Why? Because the same noun is used to describe God 16 out of 21 times that it's mentioned in scripture. 
So insofar as God does help us but is not our inferior, so too woman is a helper to Adam and not his inferior. That's the logic. Complementarians, on the other hand, are going to say that though both Adam and Eve are, were absolutely created equal before God, absolutely, the language is that they remain distinct in manhood and womanhood as part of the created order. So it might sound simplistic, and I, but like this idea of complement, like the name complementarianism, men and women are equal but distinct, and they complement one another. Right? So. Equal, complementary. Those are the major distinctions between these camps, okay? We move on to the fall. Egalitarians see Adam's rule as a result of sin, not as a part of the original created order. So it's only after the fall, they point out, that woman is told that her husband will rule over her. That's not a created good thing. And actually, just like he named animals, Adam then, only after that, after the fall, after that break in the garden, right? It's only after that that he names her when he exercises that ruler dominion over her. CBWM, or complementarianism, is going to say, no, Adam's headship was established by God before the fall. It's not the result of sin. And they're going to say, listen, husbands are going to be held accountable before God for the spiritual, the general well-being of their wives and children. That's a, note how differently these two camps are reading that text. Redemption, all right? What we hope for. What happens here? Egalitarians say that Christ works to redeem the results of the fall including this lack of equality between the sexes. So by faith in Jesus Christ, we all become children of God, one in Christ, heirs to the blessing of salvation without regard to race, class, or gender. That's the inflection point for egalitarians. Complementarians absolutely agree with that last sentence, right? that we are heir to the blessings of salvation in Christ without regard to race, class, or gender. They 100% absolutely hold to that as well. But they also say that salvation in Christ does not remove the role distinctions, the complementarity between men and women as men and women. So husbands should forsake harsh and selfish leadership, absolutely. They need to grow in love and care for their wives. It's not just leadership, it's good, selfless leadership that men are called to, husbands are called to. And then wives need to forsake this resistance to husband's authority. They need to learn how to grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's servant-like leadership. So here's what I want you to do. We're gonna take just a few minutes here. I want you to turn to someone around you and I want you to this may not be your tradition, that's fine. In your group, however, I want you to talk about which of these you find most compelling and why, but I also want, so which of these do you find most compelling and why? That's the major question. I also want you to talk about what you find compelling about potentially the position you don't find most compelling. You know what, they do have a point there. So which do you find most compelling and why? What's a good point from a side that you wouldn't hold as your own? All right?
right? Okay. I don't need this laminated. No one's going to hold you to it. I'm just interested, okay? Irrespective of whether this is your tradition, the question is which you find most compelling. So if you had to vote today, and I'm, again, no one's going to hold you to this. I'm just interested. If you found the complementarian view of how to read scripture most compelling, raise your hand. Okay, thank you. If you found, again, irrespective of your tradition, the egalitarian view most compelling, please raise your hand. Okay. One thing I want to say, because I actually do want to hear from you in a little bit, but I, I just want to reiterate this. I kind of giggled my way through that sad march through history. Um, I didn't giggle 15 or 20 years ago. In fact, it hurt, right? Like when I read these men, who I'm not kidding when I say that they made the gospel come alive to me. When I started taking note of these places where they said these things, it hurt. It felt like, it, like a zinger out of nowhere. Like a, just like a, was it like a hook? Is that the kind of punch? It came out of nowhere. Over time, I, so I guess I had some options, right? I could burn it all down. If this is the tradition, then I have nothing I want, I, I want nothing to do with that. If this is the steady drumbeat of Christianity, of the Christian tradition, then I want nothing to do with it. That's an option. Some people take that option. You could also completely ignore it. You could just completely ignore that these things were said. I don't, neither of those were live options for me. Because elsewhere, they were saying such good and true and beautiful things about this Jesus I loved and about this church that I wanted to be in that I had to figure out how to reconcile these really hurtful statements with these otherwise gorgeous depictions of what it means to follow Christ. And quite honestly, that has taken a lifetime. That's been a practice for me of learning how to forgive a tradition and also recommend the remainder. I don't think I can fast track that for anybody in the room. Like if you're currently struggling with that, like you kind of have to work your way through it. But I guess I would simply want to say it's, it's kind of worth the wrestle. I've come away I love Augustine more now than I ever did. I love Thomas Aquinas today more than I ever did. I love Erasmus. These men have shaped my future because they've set a path for me of how to follow Christ. But I do love them enough to hold them accountable. So, I just want to throw that out there, okay? Because I don't want it to come across that I was being overly flippant with what are truly, really difficult passages. I want to turn now to a couple, and there's so many, but we just don't have time. If you're interested, just take a theology class. Come join the School of Theology. We do this all the time. But we're going to look at two passages that kind of sit at the center of debates between complementarians and egalitarians. They both love these scriptures, and they read them really differently. So I want to turn first to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2. It says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. 
I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. If you're a complementarian, or if you tend to find that argument more compelling, you're going to have quite a kind of literal or just sort of straightforward read of this text, right? It's not just descriptive of a situation happening at a certain church, it's prescriptive, right? It's meant to tell us how women ought to act, in this case, men and women. So in this case, if you read this just sort of straightforwardly, right, women should learn in quietness and submission. They shouldn't teach or have authority over men. They should be quiet. So if you take this position, well, then it starts to delimit really clear roles that women can and should play in the world. Now, how you describe that, of whether they can teach what in a state school but not a Bible school, whether they can teach children's church but not give a sermon, like where you draw that line is up for debate and is a highly debated topic, but the fact that there's this biblical warrant for women's submission, for women's um, being precluded from teaching and leading authority. This is sort of a straightforward way of reading this. If you're egalitarian, you're going to read this differently. You're going to say something like, potentially there's lots of ways to read this differently, but one option would be to say, this isn't universally binding, this is a culturally specific claim. There are clearly things going on in this immediate church that Paul is addressing. He's not making timeless, universal claims, he's making time-bound, local claims. And part of the rationale you might give for this is, well, listen, when women have pearls or nice hairstyles in church, are they breaking some sort of important Christian rule? Men, if you don't have your hands up while you're praying all the time in, in church, are you going against Paul? But then also this like, tricky little bit about being saved through childbirth. If, if we took this literally, well, then are women who can't or don't have babies not saved? So an egalitarian is going to say, listen, it can't simply be a straightforward read because we have enough evidence that's going to make us have to go to context and make us go to potentially local and time-bound prescriptions that are nonetheless authoritative, nonetheless true and edifying, but they don't have this universal scope. So those are two different ways you can read this passage. And then for my friend back here, here's another really important passage. It's often read at weddings, but here's from Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, 
cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So one thing that we mentioned, but it's worth mentioning again, is that in the original manuscripts we have for scripture, so when they're in their original languages, it's just kind of one long sentence and it just keeps going and there's no punctuation, there's no paragraph breaks, like it's just text. That's the way we used to write. So when the Bible that you hold today, when a team of committees get together, a committee, a team of people get together and try to figure out how to interpret those ancient languages and then how to organize them in a way so that you can say something like, go to Ephesians 5. There's no Ephesians 5 in our original manuscripts. It's just a letter to Ephesians. But these wonderful committees have helped make, over time, over the last few centuries, have helped us figure out how to get to passages really easily, helps us memorize them, helps us find them, help us be on the same page. Get it? Pun. Point is, we make interpretive decisions. Bibles that tend towards a more complementarian view of Scripture, that first line, submit to one another, is linked immediately with that first line, wives. So the submission is immediately normative to women, to wives. Bible translations that tend towards more egalitarian reads of Scripture separate them. And suddenly, this submission that we ought to submit to one another becomes normative for both husband and wife. So simply to highlight, the actual shape of the Bible you hold might determine a little bit how you view things. By the way, this is the kind of stuff that gets me out of bed in the morning. I mean, theology and history in general. I know I left a lot on the table. I know there's lots of questions. Come to my office. Come hang out. We can talk more about it. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.